This is Thomas DePoe. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. recently found an article i think i got it from the fbi twitter account uh don't ask me why i follow the fbi on twitter but anyways um it was an article that they posted uh, sometime last month about how investigative assumptions can hamstring uh your ability to figure out who done it uh it's an article that's about you know when you come at a case and you have a preconceived notion about how it's going to go down because, you know, you have the perspective that you, you view things through, the, your worldview shapes what your assumptions are going to be. And if you say, well, it's just like this one that happened before because that one was just like the one that happened before that. And you can kind of box yourself in and make cases unsolvable. And uh, it's pretty easy to see how this is directly relatable to Delta Green, right? Jake, did you want to talk about the specific case that they discuss in the article? Because I thought it was kind of cool. Oh, yeah. It was a, a pretty convoluted one. Um, it w- Go ahead. You do it. I asked you if you wanted to do it, so I'll let you do okay. it. Okay. Uh, no, I'm trying to remember the exact Oh, if you don't specifics. remember, I can, I can do yeah, the, the basic intro. Okay. So, um, domestic case where a guy calls in and he's like, you got to help my girlfriend. I don't remember if it was his girlfriend or his wife is, is dead and um, or is dying. And the police come and the woman was dead with her hand sawed off and like a knife in her throat and they were like okay this is a pretty obvious like domestic murder because under what circumstances could because the guy was like she she said she was going to kill herself i was worried so i called the police and so the police are like under what fucking circumstances would someone saw their own hand off before committing suicide that makes no sense it's obviously domestic we know from talking to the neighbors or whatever that they have a history of fighting open and shut right and then uh, over the course of the article, we learn that actually the uh, the lady was, in fact, using a combination of psychoactive drugs and over the I think it was like over the counter or prescription medications that totally could produce psychosis, where you would hack your own hand off and not even feel it. Right, and the guy had alibis and uh, a bunch of other things that cleared him, but they were still kind of approaching the case as if. You know, there's no way that anybody would do this to herself. It's definitely got to be him. So yeah, his his main alibi was his friends. Right. He was like, yeah, he was out with us, a, which is like, it's the really worst alibi. alibi. Yeah, you know? like, yeah. Where was Kevin on the night of the murder? Um, he was with me totally. He was always with me. <laughs> he was he was recording a yeah. podcast. <laughs> oh well, we, yeah, we look in Jason Peter. There's no record of the podcast. So oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> the other one of the other things I like about, or I guess I don't like it about it, but. Uh, when he called 911, he said that she shot herself. Um, but when the police got there, there was just a knife. So they were like, even the guys like 911 calls bullshit. Right. So like, no, like it, none of the none of the things add up. Oh yeah, one of the and other. Definitely... Uh, sorry, one of the other things was that there was like a blood trail all throughout the house, like where this person had been dripping blood all over, had walked, had sat down somewhere for a period of time because there was like a, a collection of blood that had pooled from where they were sitting down. And, like, just bloody footprints all throughout the house. And so it's just kind of like a, a real mind-boggler. So we've all seen in our own Delta Green games how pl- players can hitch onto a assumption and then just ride it till the wheels come off. Um, and, you know, this is 
this is a, the main reason that this is an interesting article is because it, it kind of explains why that happens. So they talk about something called an anchoring bias, um, which is basically that you're going to latch onto the, the first idea you have that makes sense, like your initial assumption. You're going to subconsciously, you're going to grab evidence that supports that and dismiss evidence that doesn't support that. And the way they explain the the best way to get to stop that is to basically ask, ask the dumbest questions. Like, could her name is, the username Gina, it's a fake name, but could Gina have cut off her own hand and then stab herself in the neck? And then they, like, you know, you investigate that all the way down to the end. You know, could could she have walked through the apartment and sat in all these places? You know, and as they investigated those, they found out that actually, yes, <laughs> they could have, you know, started to figure out what, what actually happened. You guys know that, that Arthur Conan Doyle quote? Yeah, go f- give it to when us again. you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So... I think we've discussed this on this show, and we might have even possibly used that quote for uh, one of the reasons that I cited as why as to why this phenomena happens is that RPG players absolutely fucking hate starting over. Nobody wants to pursue a lead, find out that it's bullshit, and then go back to the very beginning of the investigation, especially if they're three hours into a four-hour session. And this sparked a discussion as to what level of information should the person running the game provide to the players that they are on the wrong track. And my feeling at the time, and and still, is that it depends very strongly on the pacing that you want to set for the game. If your investigation is a relatively small and contained one, it is entirely appropriate for the players to spend half the session pursuing something that is wrong, whereas if they are getting deeply, deeply sidetracked on something that you anticipated taking 15 minutes and the real mystery is two or three doors down, you are more justified in letting them know that there is much more to investigate than what they're currently looking at. I have two observations to make there. The first is that there is a name for that tendency. The name for that is the sunk cost fallacy. And the second thing, and I think I've said this before, is that I have often had the case where I've had players getting stuck, you know, spinning their wheels, banging their head against the wall, and having, after having given subsequently firmer and firmer, you know, in-game answers to the effect of there's nothing here, having to pause pause everything, grind, bring everything to a halt and say, okay, look, real talk, I don't know how to more clearly communicate that there is nothing here. <laughs> Are you clear on this? Yeah. Do you understand? <laughs> And I've had to do that more than once, and that's, I think that's fine. Uh, it's only really, like, like I, like we always say about every damn thing, it's only really a problem if your players are, are, are getting frustrated. Yeah. Yeah, because I know, I mean, to me, the, the main, uh, like, variable that I would use to determine whether I need to, like, make a, make a, a out of character break and be like, hey guys, you fucking, you fucking, you know, this is not correct. Uh, or, you know, this is bullshit. My, my experience is that when you, um, when you offer that piece of advice, you always get immediately talked over by someone who wants to continue workshopping the dead end. Like, you'll be you'll be like, oh, you know, there was also, like, uh, a bag that you haven't investigated, and then someone will talk over because they're responding to something else that a player has said, and they, they had that response queued up. They're like, okay, but we have to go back to the bathroom. I often, as the guy running the game, I, I, I sometimes, myself, get a little bit frustrated when players get stuck spinning their wheels, but I try not to voice that. Because I know that when I sit on the other side of the table, um, I don't like feeling rushed by the GM because I haven't guessed the thing that he was thinking. 
Or so, being spoon-fed. Nobody likes being spoon-fed. Yeah. So I, the advice to handlers in this case, I would say, is is if, if your players are having fun and you think they're going too slow, just just relax. Just ease off. Just let them, let them go through the process. Because nobody likes being rushed um, or feeling like they're... They're, they're, they're putting the GM out or, you know, because they're not going fast enough, particularly as somebody who likes to try and work the investigative model as a player, like all the way through follow up, you know, tie off as much as you can figure out everything feeling like you're being rushed doesn't help that because, well, what if I've missed something? What if I've overlooked the thing that, you know, that leads to the next clue? I don't want to have to come back here and do this thing again that clearly the GM is not a fan of because he thinks that I'm wasting my time. I don't mind being rushed if it's a part of the scenario where there's like it's just legit not supposed to be a big part of the investigation like if you want to railroad me just a tiny bit to get me to the part where i get to start making these investigative choices and so on i'm fine with that but once i get to that scene then you need to to yeah let me let me let, let me and let the other players do our thing because at that point we're actually supposed to be the ones making decisions plus i find that games like delta green and in Generally, any kind of game where you do investigation is, it's not fun when you just go from correct guess to correct guess to correct guess and solve the mystery and like win. Like, cause that's not real. You know, a real investigation has 10 dead ends for every correct end. Yeah. So you have to go down a couple. Um, I know I've talked about this before, but in the playtest of Iconoclast, when Shane Ivy ran it, we probably had four or five failures in intelligence gathering for every success. But all that did was make, and each failure like shut a door. Because it was like, okay, well, like, you know, torture this guy. Well, you get nothing. Well, you can't be like, torture him more. Like, you've, that's that's all you get out of that guy. So it made having so many failures or, like, dead ends made the successes feel really earned and really sweet. So there's definitely a fine line between, like, letting players stall out on, on, on a, you know, stall out on a, a failure, so to speak, or, like, teasing them with the fact that they're, you know, they're, they're getting closer. And then when they get it, you know, it feels really sweet. Did we talk in the Red Herrings episode about ways to make the dead ends more interesting in terms of forward movement? Like when we we've, like we've yes, talk, yes, but no, but we've talked about yeah, exactly. We've talked about how people don't want to start over, and so the question is: Are there ways that you can make exhausting and unproductive avenue of attack? feel less like okay we just wasted three hours because i'm 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 someone as a player who i'm not a patient person as you guys might have noticed i'm not someone who like enjoys feeling like my time has been wasted i have a very low tolerance for frustration and it's one of the reasons why i don't play delta green anymore because i don't think it's fair of me to inflict that on someone who's running the game but what are are there ways to without just making every guess correct are there ways to help the players revisit those investigative assumptions without feeling like they just threw away two to three hours of their life. One yeah, thing that sure. I do is I very generously interpret uh, questions or queries or, or or expressed intensive investigation. Right. Like your character realizes X, Y, Z, or your character goes back to this thing because they're investigating this related thing. Yeah. Like, um, for instance, the Rogue Trader game I was talking about, there's a point where uh, they've captured the, uh, the the Seneschal of this other Rogue Trader and they're interrogating her. And, they're say- and so they ask her, like, well, what's... They wanted to know what it was she was doing on the planet they found her. And so I looked at that and I, cr- and I, I generously interpreted the answer to that to include not only what she was doing, but, um, what her boss's intent was and what he was, cause, cause just what are you doing didn't, would be a dead end that wouldn't get anything. What are you doing? Well, I was doing what the boss said, but you know, 
a more a more generous interpretation of that question leads to what's his agenda in the star system? Why is he here? What is he looking for? What does, has he already found? Yeah, I can see that. I would say there's there's two things that, that I feel uh, two like tools here that can be leveraged by a handler. One is like think about all the tropey moments in the media that we love. That's all like Delta Green adjacent, like you know cop shows and stuff, like. You know, if they're stuck on a clue, like there's other there's other people working this case, so like you know, have the have the medical examiner call back and be like, hey, you know, they they may not have asked him to run like a drug test, but he probably would. So he could call him up and be like, hey, I finally got the drug test back, and guess what? It was, you know, a drug I've never seen before. Like, oh, spooky! Come take a look. You know, we're like, you know, hey, you know, patrol officer, you know, campus canvas in the neighborhood and talk. Finally got someone to talk, and here's you know what they told them. Like, you can drop clues in other ways. Even if there's not, like, like, like a Delta Green, you tend to do things just agent to agent. You might not reach out to the medical examiner because what you're investigating is like a secret that you wouldn't want anyone to know. But you can still have those internal moments, like, tell me about your Gina moment, right? Where you're playing a, a Fed or a cop or a whatever, where they had a moment where their character had made an assumption and then proved themselves wrong. So tell me about your Gina moment. Yeah, the other, the other one I like is... At least, so like, say they're interrogating someone or, or investigating, you know, asking questions of, of, a, of a person who has a clue, and they're not asking the right questions. There's one thing that I learned from doing law enforcement is people, if you just give people the space to talk, they will ramble on, especially in the presence of an authority figure. So if they ask, like, you know, where were you last night? The person isn't going to say, oh, I was at my friend's house. They're going to be like, oh, I was at my friend's house. He's a really cool guy. Uh, you know, he was out, he was with us. You know, and, and he totally drives a red car, and you didn't know that he loves wheels. You know, <laughs> the way that interrogations work in Delta Green is, or the way the way that it work in RPGs is like the complete polar opposite of the actual effective strategy. Because in Delta Green, the instinct is you've got five players, and every player wants to interrupt the NPC and ask their question about something the NPC said, and the actual solution is to let the NPC talk for a long time, occasionally ask them a question, oftentimes the same question over and over, phrased in different ways, which I guess is kind of accurate to how Delta Green players usually do interrogations, but just the the absolute critical importance of not interrupting your enemy when he's making a mistake is something that is very hard to get in RPGs because a lot of for a lot of people listening to someone talk for a long period of time is not gameplay. It is boring. And that's one of the reasons why you abstract interrogations in Delta Green. Unless they're listening to this podcast, in which case, thanks for listening. Uh, like, but, comment, and subscribe. But no, <laughs> notice that even on our show, we try, not always successfully, but we try to not have one person talk too much to break it up with other people speaking. I'm nodding here, which doesn't help any of us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for sure. For so, sure. But, yeah, yeah. But but the the thing that the thing that I was thinking of um, when you guys were talking just a bit a bit ago about how investigations can rely on other people making breaks in the case is I was thinking about a series of books that I have have uh, enjoyed called Rivers of London that's a vaguely similar to Delta Green in its premise. It's about like a wizard cop who has wizard adventures in London and this structure of these books is very different from the structure of something like a Delta Green. It's almost closer to uh, something that you might find in a video game, where the main character's procedure in any of his investigations that he does in the story is rather than constantly pursuing 
single a single lead to its conclusion. He basically just lawnmowers every option that he has available to him in a different day, kind of like exhausting all the dialogue options with the NPC. But basically, he has like a list of things that he does, and this is actually based on a real police procedure that they do in the filth, and I'm pretty sure they do in other places as well, where you have like a list of actions, and it's like, okay, interview this guy, go interview this guy. It's like how Kim says, we gotta do these initial interviews, these are the important people, we gotta visit this location. Um, he has a list of things that you can do in a given day with the information you have available, and once you go and do all that stuff, a lot of that action, a lot of that, those uh, quote-unquote actions generate stuff that either has to be followed up on other pe- on by other people, or you have to wait on. So this, the structure of the books is the guy does all these different things, and then he basically like goes home, does paperwork, plays video games, talks to the various other characters. The next day, he goes and has a new menu of investigative options available to him, which in turn open up new ones. So rather than pursuing one lead endlessly, he is sort of this, it's this revolving process where he revisits each item in turn as, as new options unlock. And that's, it's pretty, like, it's it's kind of formulaic, but it's fun to read. The issue in RPG design is that that requires you to have a very large menu of options that constantly involve, or sorry, involve, constantly evolve in response to the players putting pressure on them. Yeah, and you got to be careful there. If you invent some out-of-hand clue, there's a, like, if they ask, a, you know, what kind of car does the guy drive, and it's totally unimportant, and you're like, oh, it's a Mazda. They're like, oh, it must be a Mazda. It must be a five-letter word. It must be, you know, uh, starts with an M. Let's decode those letters into numbers. Like, so you get to be careful if you give the players a red herring, you know, or give the players a clue that you've made up without, like, working it into the world. You may you may find them jumping down a rabbit hole that you didn't intend to. Max, do you remember when you playtested who killed the case officer uh and there was a moment where i was doing i was talking to one of the two agents um and then he said he we went off on a tangent and then he came back to it by saying so do you think this cult of the whatever you know did the case officer and then i stopped and said hold on did did you max screw that up or did he screw that up because i 100% did not mention them ever yeah my question for you is um, did you do that with the expectation that I would notice it? And do you think if it wasn't me, somebody else would have picked up on it? Um, I don't think I did it with the expectation that a specific player would notice it. I think the reason, if I recall correctly, the reason I did it is because that NPC is in character trying to direct you towards a wrong answer. And so if you do not bring it up, he himself will bring it up. And that does one of two things. Either the players take it at face value and go investigate the wrong thing, or they do what you did, which is notice that he brought it up essentially unprompted. So, yes, it was deliberate, and I think at that time, I probably, if, if you had asked me beforehand, I probably would have bet on you noticing it, and if not you noticing it, then potentially someone else. But yes, that was a deliberate choice to have the NPC do that, because everything in that scenario is designed to point to a wrong answer, but also give the players an opportunity to realize that they're being misled. That's a set of red herrings that is all in character created by people in the game world who have an incentive to mislead you. That's also a trope in police procedurals, right? The suspect mentions something unprompted that nobody else has mentioned before he did. Oh, that's my favorite. Oh, you're talking about like when they reveal a secret. Yeah. Like, okay. I was about to talk about um, 
When I was a training officer, I used to tell my trainees, it's kind of related to like how when you interrogate people, you just let them talk and eventually like they'll slip up and say something. But like when you're investigating something and the person who you're talking to starts answering questions that you haven't asked yet, it's a nice, this is a, this is a bias. This is an assumption. It might not necessarily be true, but it's been true in my experience. When someone starts answering questions that you haven't asked yet, it, it points towards like their guilt. They're just kind of like rambling on. It's just something I've noticed. So um, we, we, we've talked a bit about how, as a GM, you can guide your players through an investigative process if they seem kind of stuck. Um, I wonder if it's used, like, it's, it's all well and good to talk about what to do when the players ask the right questions. What if they don't know what the right questions are? Uh, maybe we can give some advice to people who are listening who who don't know how to how to work an investigation um do you guys i think i may have mentioned this before do you guys know the five w's of information synthesis sure the who what when where why yeah you go wendigos wendigos werewolves no that's another another five w's yeah no yeah it's the other one yeah yeah who what when where why not always necessarily in that order don't forget how um this this is a technique used in in like well, they used to teach journalists how to do this. I, I don't, the state of journalism today, I don't think they teach that anymore. But, um, <laughs> the, the idea of having these, the five W's, these five questions is that, um, that will kind of help you establish the facts. And until you have established the facts, you are guessing. That is important to point out. Um, particularly people who play investigative games or games that aren't so investigative will latch onto the first fact they find and then start making assumptions. Uh, that is not helpful. Uh, that is a good way to get stuck. That is a good way to get into a blind, into a dead end because you have overlooked something because you haven't bothered to follow it up. Each of the, f- the five W questions, you know, you'll, you'll notice that these questions that none of them can be answered with a simple yes or no. These are all questions that require like complete statements of fact. I think, in fact, we have brushed on this before. Um, and Jake, I remember you posting on the Twitter a, picture of a list of factual questions from what what rpg book was that from uh mutant city blues right okay yeah so we'll uh we'll we'll link that one again because we have we have brushed on that was the victim a known mutant (laughs) i mean technically everybody's a mutant yeah but were they a known mutant i mean i know that everyone is technically a mutant so yes here's a question um how many people have to know that somebody is a mutant before they become a known mutant at least one okay I guess if so they know they're a mutant, they're covered because no well, one person well, knows they're a mutant. You can't know that they're conscious though, so they don't. They can't count. You can oh, count themselves. Boy. But then, how does anyone else count? Uh, they don't. You can only count yourself. We've invented a new paradox. So the other good thing to try to nail down in terms of investigation, if there's a crime, generally speaking, almost all the time, if there's a crime committed, someone has to have the means to commit the crime, a motive to commit the crime, and an opportunity to commit the crime. So if you can't, if you're missing one or two of those, either you haven't dug hard enough or you're like on the wrong, you know, barking up the wrong tree. Well, means, motive, and opportunity. Those are three of the W questions. Means is, uh, is, is, ha- oh no, it's not. Cause, cause how is not a W question. It's also not on the list. I mean, they're, they're related, but not, they're not like they're the, in the Venn diagram of, of these two things. There's a large overlap, but not a perfect overlap. Yeah. So you've got, you've got the means, motive, opportunity as one circle, and then you've got the five W's and those overlap quite a bit. And then all the way over to the side, Kevin, you've got your college roommate. Yeah, exactly. And remember, someone can have the means, the motive, the opportunity, and also not have done the crime. So, you know, know that. <laughs> that's, what, that's what alibis are for. 
all three are necessary in order to. But of course, this works for many investigative games, but of course, when dealing with the mythos, not always applicable. And the, the means may not be something that you can understand. That's right. right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The means can be, can be a little bit tricky, um, but it is still, at least in the types of games that we all like to play and run, where humans are the acting parties, um, it is still a useful tool, because even if the means is unnatural and unknowable, you still got to have answers to the other two. Sure, and you don't necessarily have to answer the question right off the bat, you know. No, how, you can leave it they... blank and come back to it. How did they get into this bank vault? You know, we, we, the handler know that the person teleported into the bank vault. Well, see, that's like, where, that's where the Holmes axiom comes back in is if, is if the how is impossible, is, um, impossible. Well, maybe it's left? not. If, if, if they got in, then clearly sure. it's not impossible. It's like you, you ask the question in act one. And by the time you get to act three or four, you're ready for the reveal. So the mystery, we want it to be solved, but we can just kind of preserve it for later. Well, and it's important to know that, like a a good a good Delta Green scenario, even if the motive or even if the you know the method is mythos related, it should still be understandable. Like it should be internally consistent. Right. So, like if it was teleportation to get into the bank vault, there should be the player should be able to find some kind of evidence or like read a tome that gives them teleportation or the see the monster teleport around. Like I mean, there should be something. It shouldn't just be like, oh, it was a wizard and you never had any chance to figure it out and you're you're dumb. Like that that's bad writing. So a well written scenario should be should still be consistent with means, motive, and opportunity. And I'm wondering if there are any like are our favorite Delta Green published scenarios internally consistent like that. I feel like yes, but I'd have to go through and really you, think about it. What do you them. mean? By, I don't understand the the question you're asking here. Well, like like if 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 that's the good rule, then do all the published scenarios conform to that, or are some of them just like a wizard did it? I mean, even even night floors and impossible landscapes have a kind of twisted internal logic to them. Yeah. Even though they are surrealist horror, and by intent of construction are are difficult to logically parse, they do have a kind of they do have a sort of internal consistency to them. They have enough. Uh, the one that really f- breaks down, and we've criticized this, and there's, there's an obvious solution to it that we've identified, and it's in, I don't know if it's in the new version, is Artifact Zero. Artifact Zero having the Kenyan DNA in the guy. Is there a new version of Artifact Zero? I don't know if there is, but I know, I know that the version that everyone runs is the one that fixes that. That is the version that I run, and when I say version, I mean I just I leave that out. Uh, in fact, Dennis called me out on it when I ran at Gen Con and told him about it. He was like, what about the guy who's immune? And I said, uh, well, one, I didn't have time, and two, I don't like that because it makes it impossible. And uh, I don't recall Dennis's reaction, but uh, he was I think he was letting me have that one. But um, asking questions about logical facts of the case and then answering them yourself in ways that kind of block you off. I see people do this all the time. I think I've done it once or twice. I don't know why people do it, um, but it's a common thing, so don't do that. Give us some example. Uh, okay, um, we had a wizard robbing a bank. Okay, so wizards robbing a bank. Why is the wizard robbing a bank? Um, well, because he needs money. Well, that doesn't make sense, because if he's a wizard, why can't he just magic himself up some money? So he must have some other reason. Well, I have just assumed two things that are not in evidence right there. All right. And thus blocked off an avenue of investigation. I blocked it off myself, and I've done it in such a way that I think I've proved it, but I haven't. Yeah, maybe maybe he didn't rob the bank for money. Maybe he got an important item that he or, needed for greater maybe, magic out of maybe a security I'm just, vault. Maybe I'm just being too generous about what I'm assuming a wizard can do, right? Sure. Maybe I'm just assuming that a wizard can just yeah. magic up some gold. Maybe, maybe, he, maybe he can't. Maybe that's a false assumption. 
and that's especially key uh, dealing with with games of, of supernatural events and magics and mythos and stuff. That is especially key because while, yes, it is technically true that anything is possible, if you take that as an axiom that anything is possible, you can block yourself off of, of picking up on clues because you'll say, well, anything's possible, so this is possible, which means this is false, so I'll just leave that alone. No. No, don't do that. Why is the most important question, in my opinion, of the five W's? Um, because you know that thing that kids do where they just ask, drill down on why questions? <laughs> why? Yeah. Why? That is annoying, why? but it is also why? key to like the, the investigative method of, of, of establishing facts. That is important. So players, don't be afraid to do that. Handlers, cut your players some slack if they keep asking why questions. Let them do it. It's important. They're trying to figure out the ground rules. I'm sitting here holding back, just asking you why from every time you say something. Oh, well, I mean, just to be annoying. Do it. Here, let's do a thought. <laughs> let's do a, a, dem- a demonstration. Give, give me some why questions. Why is it important to not hold that back as a handler? Well, it's important to not uh, try and stop it as a handler because if a player is asking why, it's because they are missing information and they're trying to get that information. Why are they missing information, Will? Well, if they're missing information, it's either because they've overlooked something or it's because you've overlooked something. So a player asking a why question is key to fill that information gap. I think there is a, a ultimately a black box at the end of the why questions, especially if we're talking about like alien creatures and magic and stuff, because eventually you do reach a point where the published setting material of Delta Green does, and, and the said the central setting conceits do not allow us to understand why certain things do certain things. I absolutely agree. And it is important to to know where that boundary is because once you reach that black box, you have reached the boundary. You now know you can go no further. That is that is key. There's no more unknowns past that point. I mean there are unknowns past that point, but past that point it is clear that there's no going further. So now you now you've established your boundary conditions. Establishing your boundary conditions is key to figuring out the facts of of a of a of an investigation. Yeah, there's no more knowns past that point. Uh yes. Well, there's That's actually known knowns. And oh my god! Unknown. Unknowns. Go to war with the knowns you Didn't know, not the knowns you don't. Use know? that as an episode title. Probably. Yeah, we did uh, a yeah. while back. Yeah, that was good. It's not like we haven't released the same episode title twice, you know. We've released the same episode twice. I don't know what you mean. Only half of the episode. Only half. So if your players start asking really good questions and you're not, you don't have the answer for them. A way to obviously in the moment you can't avoid it. You're stuck. But if when you're writing the scenario, it'd be really helpful to have someone who has no knowledge of the scenario read through it with an eye for all the questions they might ask. So they should ask you stuff like, you know, does the wizard have a, you know, a tome? You know, is there is there a, a dust or evidence of a teleportation in the in the vault? Is there a, are the cameras? You know, are there guard? You know, all this kind of stuff. Maybe you haven't thought about those. And then if someone asks you all that when they like proof your scenario, then you're able to add those clues in, and when the player asks them in real life, you've, you've got the answer. It's I, mean, I would call it red teaming, but it's not really red teaming, but I don't want to get into discussion of what is and isn't red teaming, but like having someone look at your scenario with, with a critical eye towards how they would tear it apart as a, you know, a hungry player is really helpful. I mean, there's definitely some pen testing going on there, yeah. Here's my question. This is a setting where both in and out of character it is reasonable for the players to assume some things that would be preposterous in another genre. So Delta Green, and this this can be a discussion about metagaming, this can be a discussion about how characters in the game world process unnatural activity. The question is 
to what level is it reasonable or appropriate for player characters or players who have in-game or out-of-game experience with a certain setting concept, like a certain type of alien or a certain magic spell, What to what level is it reasonable for those characters to suggest that as an explanation before any evidence has appeared for it in the game world? Like, for, for example... If I, if there is a murder that has a strange circumstance, am I as a player character allowed to say the guy may be a shapeshifter? Or if a brain has been removed, can I say, what if a dude ate it to gain the memories inside? I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, what if and could he, could it have been? I think the trap is going from, from that to it is or it must have been. But yeah, I think honestly saying what if anything is fair game. And I think there's a fine line between uh, what if this guy's brain is using something ate it, or you know, oh, what if a ghoul used the power, you know, brain consume, which all fourth level ghouls have. Like, you know, that's that's really you know, a player shouldn't know that unless they have, unless the character has you know a crazy experience with ghouls. But a what if question generally is. Great. And this this really gets down into the weeds of like, does the cultural influence that informed Delta Green actually exist in the Delta Green world? Like how in every zombie in every zombie setting now, no one knows what zombies are because there's no zombie media that exists. They don't even know the word zombie. Or, um, but 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 like, let's say um, Delta Green, the concept of a ghoul that eats brains to gain the memories inside is something that is present in a lot of non-mythos media in the real world, like the Alzabo. The Alzabo right. is a creature that does that, or um, the, the, the ghoul bear from, uh, oh, it's the movie, uh, Annihilation. The ghoul bear from Annihilation, which is a, a, a riff on the same concept. Those are things that do not depend on the existence of stories about ghouls from like Pikmin's model or um I forget the one that introduces more digging where they're in the the like the ghoul temple underground or whatever but more digging yeah it's a real piece of hackery uh to name the ghoul god more digging it's like uh naming the fire god more burning and uh the question is like to what level am I allowed to say oh yeah my dude fucking red uh what is it? Sword of the Lictor? Uh, maybe it's Claw the Conciliator. He has the idea of a brain-eating gremlin that gets the memories of the people it kills in his brain from this piece of fiction, and he knows that some of these pieces of, of fucked-up fiction are actually quite similar to things that exist in the world, in the world is that a Is that a possible use of the uh, occult skill? You know, it's a unnatural yeah, skill analog. You know, oh, I know about, you know, the Haitian zombie stories... Or I know about um, this movie that I saw one time that theorized the existence of shapeshifters or something like that, you know? If the premise of settings like Delta Green or World of Darkness or Unknown Armies, if the premise is that the history of those worlds is the history of our world except the stuff that's made up is real, then those cultural factors are still in play in the popular culture. Except they're there not because people wrote about them, they're there because they are half-remembered truths. I think, yeah, I mean, a cult is a good one, but but somebody may, may not have it. Um, I guess what I would want a player to realize is that, like, so they may, a player may have a cooler idea than the handler did, or the handler, like, I mean, I'm an example of this, I don't, I don't read a lot of mythos stuff, so I might, like, tangentially invent a brain-eating thing, and then someone's like, it's in this lava or whatever, and I'm like, I don't know what that is, I invented something <laughs> different, so the player needs to be able to realize that the handler, like, kind of does a, qu a quick cut, and they're like, that's a cool idea, but it's not that, to be like, okay. There's also the occasion where people are 
familiar with a media property that the person running the game has adapted, but mm. they're not deliberately trying to sabotage the game. They're just being like, oh, it's a fucking um, shadow at a time. So not, not, not even a shadow. Let's use, let's use a non-memecraft example. They're like, oh, it's just like that movie Arrival, or oh, you know, it's very similar to uh, that sketch from VHS, or yeah. oh, it looks like we've got a fucking... Um, Videodrome situation. I've done that. I, I know I've done that before. I've, I've been like, ah, it's a fucking Videodrome episode. I get it. Yeah, yeah. All of your uh, reductive summaries of scenarios. But, I but did it giving that while well, bread by accident once. Yeah, you you were like you were like, oh, I'm gonna look up the coordinates in Google and then and then spoil the entire scenario <laughs> by posting <laughs> yeah. it in a public chat where the other players could see it. Thought I was being clever. It turns out I was too clever. Well, the thing to do is like, what's that? What's that one pit in Montana that killed all the geese? The Butte Pit. Yeah, so the thing to do is like an Extremophilia where it's not the Butte Pit, it's some other pit that doesn't exist and has a completely different it's name. It's the We're Afraid of Being Sued by the Anaconda Mining Company pit. Yeah, which is both good a good legal strategy and a good game design strategy. If you are going to take something that exists, if there is a possibility that knowing that it exists in the real world as a location or whatever uh, could spoil the scenario, change the name, change the location, put it yeah. somewhere different. Uh, or just write one where knowing the location doesn't spoil anything like the Karst Cave in British Columbia. That said, I also really like when people can if – if I use something real, because I want players to be able to use either real knowledge of it or find real knowledge of it. Like being able to look up like you know, the, the lat long of something and like plan your assault on the, on the Celtics compound because I use a real location. It's fun. Players like that, you know? But there's obviously – got to be careful if you use real world stuff because players also can find things that you don't want them to. Yeah, I think that it's di- the difficulty is that sometimes looking stuff up is good. Like I – have had cases where I'm mean, like, that's on that's on Google Maps, my dude, or that's publicly available information. But then there are other cases where, like the only like like I remember this with what there was one scenario that has like a puzzle in it, and if you Google search any information from the puzzle, the first result is the shotgun scenario on Fairfield. <laughs> that was one that you were running well. That, yeah, that we, did, we did that, and then we're like, oops. But that that is a result of search engine indexing over the course of what a decade. So that is yeah. that very much would not have been the case when it was first published. Um, and also all the links that it refers to are dead anyway. Yeah. But um, a similar example in Autark Sunrise with the tarot cards that are kind of not key but important clues. Yeah. When I ran that for some guys in the Black Pants Legion, um, uh, one friend of mine I happened to know. Uh, knows quite a bit about, like, tarot and occultism and stuff. <laughs> yeah. So he, he goes into the suicide booth and he finds, you know, the, the King of Swords. And he's like, hey, um, what, uh, what, what could this mean, Handler? And I say, look, you're playing pre-gen Agent Clark, who has 16 occult, and also I know you know what this card means. So I think reasonably anything you know about tarot cards, Agent Clark knows about tarot cards. And then he just, he, he just kind of goes, well, it could mean this. Uh, if it's inverted, it could mean that. This and is, he, Ke- Kevin had a similar experience. Yeah, but yeah, that, but that was, that was cool because he went through a bunch of things that it was and narrowed it down to some of them that made the most sense. It didn't break the scenario, but it added depth to it. Right. Yeah. The the issue is that the meaning of Suicide King in that scenario is I saw the picture that Detweller drew for it and I thought it was metal. Well, that's yeah, it, that is yeah. that is kind of what he eventually zeroed in on because he realized that like it, normally it, it refers to like the presence of like magic or something and he's like, well, that doesn't really make any sense. Right. This doesn't make much sense. That doesn't make much sense. What if it's just? I mean, it's called the Suicide King. What if that's that? What if that's what it means? The thing. The other thing about um the King and Yellow Tarot is that I think that any of the names associated with it 
uh, you know, Sustorus and Jacob, Jacob Constantine, whatever. I'm pretty sure if you, cause, cause people might assume those are real and Google it. And I think the first result for those, cause I think, I think, I think Sustorus is real. I don't remember if Constantine is real. One of those, actually, uh, I remember that, yeah. I'm not sure if you Google it if the first result will be King and Yellow Tarot or if it'll go to the real guy. But yeah, that that was that was a similar experience that Kevin had where he had a player that was knowledgeable about tarot and suggested that um a lot of the cards that I used were not actually the correct ones, which I think is is probably right. I was basically just using the ones that were in the preview of the King and Yellow Tarot that um that Art Dream was releasing. Ah, yes. So that is an illustration of the concept I mentioned earlier, which is to not uh, get caught up on your assumptions. To to rather is to ask why, but to not assume therefore it must. Yeah, that's also a case where I mean, so with my players, I had to be like, "Yo, these were picked because they were cool. They have nothing to do with real tarot. Tarot isn't real." And they got mad because they were like, "Tarot is real," and I was like, "Jesus Christ!" But you know, that's beside the point. Um, like I, I could tell they were going down a path that they couldn't go down, and I was like, "That's enough." Well, that's that's what I mean. Is is that they they asked a what if question, and then they assumed without facts and evidence, they assumed therefore it must. So what if good? Assuming facts not in evidence, bad. Well, that's everything to to do with believing things that aren't real, but it's fine. I mean, yes, but the less said about that, the better. I think. Is there any other thoughts on investigative assumptions? Uh, I would encourage folks, you know, we skimmed over the article in, in our thing because I didn't want to just read an entire FBI article yeah. to you. I'll but include the link. Read. I'll include the link to yeah. the article because it is a good read. Uh, there's a lot of uh, it's, it's it's useful to know about. Delta Green is a game that uh, all the advice you get in the Handler's book, and I would agree with most of this, is to start with a very like on the nose uh, hook for the adventure. Like this, the game begins with something fucking weird happening. Which I think is great because it, it encourages people to engage early on. They don't necessarily have to like listen to a long briefing or whatever. They can go to the crime scene and see that something fucked up has happened. Like a person was turned into a whale made of just human fat. Or like a ghost came through a portal and shocked someone with electricity. Whatever. Uh, and I think Detwiller recently had a, a, a Patreon post that actually tried to specify what the exciting hook of each scenario was that he had written. But the, my question is, um, if we're encouraging people to question their preposterous investigative assumptions, does that plug in to cases where... Because we do have some Delta Green scenarios out there that are essentially about mundane events that have a visible but ultimately false supernatural gloss to them. Do we want to encourage people to actually try and come up with rational explanations rather than just using that as a as a sort of an in-character explanation for why you passed or failed a sand roll. Because think, think about the case in the article, the woman who supposedly cut her own hand off and then stabbed herself in the throat. I had a very similar unnatural hook in a scenario of a guy who died while trying to saw his own skullcap off. And in that scenario, there was an unnatural explanation for why he did that. But what if in an alternate reality, it really was just a guy who had taken a combination of psychoactive drugs that caused him to do that and then die of it? I would say it's important to come up with a answer, but know that in Delta Green, the answer may be irrational. You may not get to a rational answer. You may have to come to your best irrational conclusion. I'd say that is a Gina moment for a character to recall. Like later on, like that's not necessarily a great Delta Green 
like you wouldn't want that to be the end of the scenario where you find out, oh yeah, he's just tripping his balls off and he tried to, you know, cut open the scalp himself, right? But, you know, that's something for a player to be able to put uh, into their memory bank. And then you as a handler to come up later and be like, hey, remember that time you thought there was something fucky going on with that guy who tried to scalp himself, but it turned out he was just really high? Well, this might be another situation like that. And it's just a way for you to get players to back down off of their assumptions by recalling past patterns where they were wrong. All right, we got any parting shots here or are we good to... Yeah, players, don't be afraid to revisit your starting investigative assumptions. Handlers, try to find ways to make revisiting investigative assumptions that are obviously, to you, obviously wrong, uh, less painful and unpleasant for the players, if you want them to do it. Don't close your own doors. Let the handler close them for you. 